Welcome to Civil Discourse, a podcast where participants are free to share their ideas, empathize with other perspectives, and who intend to advance to a better solution to fix a societal ill. We will focus on topics that are particularly complicated. In a time where information is from sources more opinionated than ever, our mission is to find solutions and goals to accelerate the nation's progress with cultural impunity. I'm your host, Todd Furness. Hello, and welcome to today's episode of Civil Discourse. I'm Todd Furness, your host, and as always, uh, I hope you enjoy this content, and I hope that you'll take an opportunity to like, share, and subscribe. Uh, we do this all for fun, and, and uh, we are not sponsored by anybody, uh, so it's really just dependent upon you to signal your interest in the topic, uh, and I'm really excited about the topic we have today. Uh, so I'm sure that our, our guest, Jack, will only encourage you to, to like, share, and subscribe more. Uh, we have today a, a, a very, very exciting guest, uh, Jack Lattice, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation today for a whole bunch of reasons, um, not the least of which is Jack is currently sitting in England and uh, you know, a small pond away, uh, but I, I wanted to kind of explore a little bit of healthcare delivery models outside of the United States. Why are they different? What are the, why are they the same? And uh, what makes them good or bad? Uh, and then at the same time, dive into some stuff that's a little bit more futuristic. Um, and I'm really excited to talk about to Jack in part because of his uh, the one thing that is absolutely vital, which is the engagement he's been able to realize by virtue of some of the things he's doing. So Jack, uh, CEO of Lattice Health, thank you so much for, uh, for being with me today. And uh, I'm looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, absolutely, Todd. Really looking forward to it. Thank you very much for having me on. You bet. So give us a little bit of an overview of the company that you're running and um, its client base and what you're trying to, to do that solves a problem in the marketplace. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So um, Latest Health, we're a family-owned company based in the UK. Um, predominantly, we do all of our business in, in the UK. And our uh, customers or our clients um, or patients all tend to be um, workplaces within um, the UK or certainly got their headquarters based here. Um, so our core function is the, their occupational health requirements and their well-being requirements. So making sure that people are staying healthy within the workplace and actually trying to promote their health and improve it as well. Um, when we first came into the industry, we realized that most people's <clears throat> idea of occupational health was just about how do you protect people at work? How do you get them back to work if they're ill? And we said, well, actually, if someone's at work for eight plus hours per day, why shouldn't the workplace say, actually, how can we improve your health? So you're actually getting a, a well-being benefit from being at work, not just you know protecting and making sure people go home safe. Um, so we've been doing that for the last 11 years. Um, and over the time, we've managed to use digitization of occupational health and innovation and moving towards areas such as virtual reality and maybe even future uh, opportunities within the metaverse, et cetera, to um, really differentiate our offering um, and to make sure that we get really good engagement rates with our uh, the, the employees that we work with. So there are a couple of things out in there. First of all, I think I mispronounced the name of the company. It's Latest Health? Yeah, I mean, it looks like Lattice. Uh, it, it does, but um, technically it's pronounced Latest. But I think the only person who would be angry at you would be my granddad, so don't worry about <laughs> it. And he won't be watching this. <laughs> <laughs> so the second thing is, um, in the UK model, there's a, an opening 
for occupational health that's, that may or may not exist in the United States. I want to just kind of clarify that. Um, under NIH, how do you organize that? It, it, would the occupational health stuff that you're doing ordinarily be, fall under that, or would injuries or illnesses that arise out of the workplace fall under NIH, or is that something that companies are doing because they think it's the right thing to do ethically and morally, or because they want to support their employee better, employees better, or something else? Um, it's a good question. It's a, there's a split between the requirements. So for some people, sorry, some businesses within the UK, there is a, a legal statutory requirement to provide occupational health. So most of those would be in workplaces where there could be, the environment could potentially be harmful to your health. So if an employee is working in a noisy environment, dusty, working with chemicals, then by law, by health and safety executive law, the um, business has to supply um, that healthcare, um, mainly surveillance and screening to the employee. Um, then there's obviously the um, like the employment, sorry, employment law side of occupational health, which is essentially uh, making sure that people are getting the correct advice to make sure that they're safe at work, um, that the employer is getting the advice they need to make sure that it's safe for them to bring someone back to work, what changes or adjustments do they need to make someone's work so it to be um, fair and non-discriminative um, to that employee. Uh, and then the, the, the sort of the, the more proactive final part of that now is, is more of the well-being promotion. So let's call it the health and wellness at work within the workplace. And that really historically has been seen as a nice to have, but in the um, employee driven market that we have at the moment within the UK, actually it's becoming a must have for you to stay in the talent attraction and retention race. You, you have to be seen to be looking after your employees and no longer, we're, we're probably in a bit of a, a migration at the moment away from a tick box being sufficient. And actually the employees now are quite wise to what a good employee wellbeing program looks like. Uh, and what they want to get from it they're very well educated now i guess and so because of that it, it's no longer adequate to just have a tick box well-being program you now do need to be delivering some serious value from a well-being uh, proposition to to your employees very good so it's not altogether that dissimilar from the u.s model and we have certain federal and state requirements and then additionally um, it's viewed as a value add to the employer employee relationship to the extent that it's a good quality program and it's viewed as something less than that to the extent that it's a, a, a substandard benefits package offering. Yeah. So I think we're, I think we're, yeah, I think where we differ, the model differs in when the insurers come into it. So within the American uh, healthcare system, obviously you don't have the NHS the same way that we do over here in the UK. Um, so there's more pressure on the, employer on the businesses to provide the insurance to the employees and the and therefore there becomes the incentive a greater incentive for the uh, for the business for the employer to look for ways to reduce insurance premiums to reduce the requirement for um payouts etc for healthcare by looking at more proactive solutions so if as a someone selling our services you can go to a business and say well actually we can give you a a, a guaranteed return on investment um we can give you a guarantee keeps thinking i'm raising my hand because i've taught my hand so much um, if, yeah uh, if, if if as a a supplier of a service you can go and say we, we can give you a pretty much a guaranteed return on investment because by working with latest that will reduce your uh, insurance premiums by this much that's a really easy 
value proposition to give to that business. It's a little bit harder in, uh, in the UK because the value proposition we go with is it will reduce your absence rate, will reduce your sickness rate. So therefore that's a cost saving. Um, it will help you recruit more employees or easily. So that's a, that's a, a cost saving. Uh, you know, same thing with you'll retain your employees more. So you'll have that attrition, those attrition costs. Uh, and then all of the other knock-on uh, cost benefits to uh, increase productivity, et cetera. So it's a, it's a slightly more, um, a less obvious return on investment in the UK, but uh, businesses are starting to get wise to it that they do actually get that return on investment. Very good. And so have you thought about bringing your model to the United States? Um, we have, I think, um, from, a, from a business strategy point of view, it's not first on our priority list of the region to uh, go to next. Um, number one for that is because we don't know the, the region well enough. Um, uh, but number two is it's, it's very competitive, although there's massive opportunity there for the reason I've just said around this sort of this insurance model. Um, it's so competitive that I think there's other areas which have a similar healthcare model, different areas in the world, but aren't quite as competitive at this stage. So let's call it slightly you know, bluer ocean as opposed to this red ocean, which is the US where people are, you know, really fighting. There's some fantastic companies doing similar things to us to have to go and compete and they've already got the market. Um, so I also think from a, a business strategy point of view, in terms of if you've ever got the aspirations for a potential exit, I always, always think businesses who are doing well in the rest of the world, you're, you're an attractive proposition for a US company or someone who's already got a a market in the US because they can apply your service to the US. Whereas if you have a crack in the US and fail, you're actually reducing your, your potential market value because someone sees that and says, oh, well, the US market didn't want you already. So actually from a, from a, a future business value point of view, of view, I think you need to be really confident when you do go to the US that you're going to crack it. Yeah, I think that's a good observation. I think the, the one thing I'd encourage you to consider is the model in the United States, oddly enough, doesn't really encourage uh, cost savings. Uh, it's, it's a little counterintuitive, but the insurance brokers, for example, have very tight relationships, very strong relationships with senior management and board members, and they do everything they can to, to dissuade them from changing anything about their, their insurance coverage because that's how they get paid, right? So insurance brokers are paid by the insurance companies whose policies they sell. And the, the misunderstanding that the, uh, the companies have is that the insurance broker has any interest whatsoever in reducing that cost. They do not. And so they paint the picture in the United States that they're doing a great job because your healthcare costs have only increased by 20 or 30% year over year. And what a wonderful thing that is and how pleased that they should be that their broker was so terrific in the execution of their duties that they were able to keep a ring fence around such a low increase in year-over-year -year expense, which is you know, nonsense. So uh, they're really reluctant as a, as a group, as a profession, to try and do anything that's particularly innovative. Uh, so that's one of the reasons that the market opportunity will exist uh, for guys like you who are genuinely trying to, to do things in a way that helps everybody and reduces cost at the same time. Yeah, I think the, the areas the insurers or the payers are looking for is ways that they can deliver the same service at a lower cost. So if previously they had to put a physio 
uh, in a room with someone and, and, and sell an hour of a physio's time. And that was going to cost, I don't know what it costs, like $100. Now, if they think actually we can use um, digital physiotherapy or AI-driven physio advice and prehabilitation or rehabilitation programs act and, and bring the cost down significantly, but still sell the premiums at the same amount, then that is a massive opportunity for the insurers of where they're going to drive their you know, gross profit and, and their margins. So I think that's maybe where the, the opportunity is with the insurers is actually to, to reduce their cost of service. Yeah, the, the challenge though, is that that's not really the way it works, meaning that the insurance companies have loss ratios. And so the loss ratio is what's being measured as a function of the premium paid. And so they don't really care what makes up the loss ratio. They just care that they hit the loss ratio. And so it's not altogether dissimilar. I'm making, I'm stretching a little bit, not too dissimilar from a cost plus model, right? Mm -hmm. So whatever your costs are, uh, you just add margin to that in the form of general administrative expense and profit. And, and that's your answer, which is why healthcare insurance, and healthcare insurance stock prices have skyrocketed uh, over the last 12 to 15 years. Um, ridiculous in in many ways so but let's 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 take on the issue of engagement because one of the things that we've seen with people trying to to really be forward thinking in terms of the way that they're serving their employees uh and get ahead of some of the insurance costs is by wellness programs and other things but the challenge that i hear from everybody is the challenge of getting their employees engaged you know, even a five to 10% engagement rate is, is a terrific outcome. The best I've ever heard is 25 to 30%. And that is heroic. And yet, you know, I think you're miles ahead of that. Tell me a little bit about what your rate is, your engagement rate is, and tell me kind of how you're able to do that. Sure. Well, our, our minimum rate of engagement across any of our clients is 60%. That's our, our bottom level. Um, and because, and I suppose the reason that happened is because when we came into this market, we were comparing ourselves to um, over here in the UK, what we use a lot is EAPs or employee assistance programs. Right. And we were looking at them and these things had engagement levels of one to 3%. You know, they were reporting 3% at best and they were like you, they were really happy with that. And I was like, well, how can a healthcare service or something which is meant to be proactive to improve people's well-being be doing anywhere near a job if it's got an engagement rate of 3%? Like it, it literally, you, you're failing miserably at that point. So when we just, we looked into it and reviewed it and it was like, hang on, an EAP, they were de developed in the 1970s. They probably served a purpose then. They're now massively oversubscribed. That model is broken. So it was like, we need to do this differently. So we need to say, how do we um, in, engage more people in it? So first and foremost, we said, well, everybody has different wellbeing needs. So let's make sure on one single platform, they can access whatever well-being support they need whenever they need it wherever they are so that was number one to do that then number two was to say well humans are creatures of habit it takes an awful lot of um work to actually improve someone's habits and to what we need really is learned accountability so the same way that when you were a child your mum and dad would have told you to brush your teeth all the time so now as an adult you brush your teeth and i'm hoping todd without anyone telling that you need to do it so that's learned accountability so when it comes to people's well-being we need to do the same thing so we need to say how do we incentivize you to start to take up that um, healthier activity whether that be drinking um, more water sleeping more moving more 
you know, whatever meditation, mindfulness, whatever those good healthy activities are. What do we have to do to incentivize someone to, to break that habit or to create that new habit? Um, because uh, fundamentally, as, as human beings, if you go back to when we were cavemen, we it, survival, we, we, it was actually, we, our rate of survival would increase if we um, seek um, immediate gratification. So immediate gratification is actually what um, helped us to survive, essentially by uh, going out and killing something, allowed us to eat, and that gave us immediate gratification. Well, that hasn't changed even in, in today's modern world. So what we, what we realized is we needed to incentivize people so they were getting immediate gratification for taking um, uh, healthier activities or you know, healthier steps. So that's exactly what we did. We built in incentivization into it via a very simple um voucher method so when you take part in any part of the uh, well-being platform you're incentivized by receiving um vouchers whether that be five pound credit to spend in any of the 130 retail brands that we have on our platform etc so and what that does is that actually teaches engagement people think okay well i access my online gp and, that, and just from doing that not only did i get the care i needed and the help i needed but i also got a a voucher uh, benefit for it so that's taught them you've done a he something healthy and you've um you've, you've been rewarded for it so that's just started to teach that really good healthy behavior so essentially those are probably the two key ways that we get 60 percent plus and 60 percent is the lowest engaging way we do um so yeah those are two key ways we we make sure that there's a a an area of well-being for everybody no matter what their needs and number two is we incentivize them to, to teach and um, learn accountability. We also put with it a, a community aspect, um, which brings more accountability, but it also brings um, that peer-to-peer -peer support and sort of almost social pressure, which um, encourages people to engage as well. So you, what you've done is you've, you've taken the friction out of accessing the service by being anytime, anyplace, anywhere. And then yep. you've rewarded people for using the service so you're rewarding people for using a frictionless service. Absolutely, yeah. And I actually think finding the right incentives is the way to improve pretty much every uh, healthcare model. So in 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 the in the UK, um, obviously we have the NHS, which spends a fortune each year on um, that the the NHS budget, looking after people for literally any anything any any healthcare need which is covered under the NHS. Well, there's there's big things that the NHS could do to incentivize people to be, excuse me, could incentivize people to be healthier, which would then reduce their illness rate and therefore would reduce the NHS costs. Uh, and I actually think moving towards an employer-led uh, healthcare system in the UK would be a, a really strong move for us. I think if you could incentivize the employers to pay for um, healthcare promotion and potentially some of the um, initial healthcare needs of an employee. And then, uh, but then incentivize the, the, the business by, will it be tax saving incentive uh, for employee engagement levels, then that would massively reduce the NHS costs. It would reduce the costs to the business of sickness and absence, improve productivity. The employee would be getting a better healthcare system and better healthcare service. They wouldn't be relying on the NHS. So everybody would be benefiting in that. Um, and it'd be saving the UK taxpayer a lot of money as well. So it really is a real win-win-win-win situation. What's interesting about that is, you know, I've been a, a 
a vocal opponent to single payer systems. And what you're doing is you're essentially augmenting the single payer system with a second a, and a primary layer of service through the, the wellness programs and the, uh, the other occupational health programs that you're offering. Um, so you're, you're kind of making it into a, a multi-provider uh, service environment by taking the front end off and encouraging the right behavior so that NHS is really only doing the catastrophic stuff or the big stuff, right? This is exactly, you want, you want to save that limited NHS resource and budget to do what only they can do. You know, we can't do heart surgery. We, we can't, you know, do emergency care. But what we can do is help the, the wood wells. We can help um, people who need, you know, yeah, I mean, one of my big pet hates is uh, within the UK is the sick note. So an employee will be sick. They'll go see their doctor. The doctor will sign them off for two weeks with no knowledge of their workplace, no knowledge of whether they could actually be fit to work. So you're in the situation then, which is no good for anybody. Yeah. You've got an employee who, who's off work who might actually be better off being at work. It might be better for their physical health, for their mental health to be at work. You've got a doctor who is, is do, delivering a service which they don't, they don't really want to. They don't, it takes up a ridiculous amount of admin time producing sick notes in the UK. And then you've got a business which has got an employee who's been signed off work for two weeks with no information on that employee's health condition other than arm pain or stress or, you know, literally it's, a, it's the most um, uninformative uh, uh, letter you could, you could imagine. Um, signed off by a doctor saying I'll review it in two weeks and no one can override that so you're in a terrible position at that point whereas if that went straight to occupational health i.e and I'm biased by saying this I've got because obviously we make money from occupational health but even if I took my bias hat off even if I was just just as a business owner not involved in healthcare and someone came to me and said right Jeff from now on if you want to know whether someone's uh, sick and should be at work or not you're always going to have to fund it as long as I knew I was going to get specific advice to me or to our business for that employee, I'd much prefer that than receiving a letter that says, you know, Bob's been signed off for two weeks with, with arm pain. It's no good to me. Right. I'm like, Bob, Bob sits down all day. He doesn't use his arms at work. He's on, the, you know, he's, he's on telephone calls all day. He's absolutely fine. Why wouldn't he be better off at work? But I've got a sick note here saying he can't come to work. You know, whereas an occupational health person would be like, actually, uh, you know, please don't ask Bob to do any lifting at work, but he can do the rest of his job you know, and keep him at work. And he might need an extra bit of time off in between if he needs to go and stretch his arm. Um, and I'll review him in two weeks, but he's staying at work. Bob's keeping up his job. His, his morale is going to be up. He's not going to be sitting at home getting worse. He's getting good social connectedness. So hopefully the whole program is much better for Bob. It's much better for me, for the business. And it's much better for the NHS because they're not having to um, waste their time. Not a very good word using the term waste, but let's say it waste their time on the the doctor's precious time and the admin time that could be used for, for much better services like you said uh, <laughs> so I, i'm i'm really excited about that the, the the thing that's particularly intriguing to me is that you're really focusing on human behavior and more, far more so to correct problems than you are on medicine and pharmaceuticals mm -hmm. And which is uh, obviously it's reactive as opposed to proactive. And, and so the proactive nature of what you're doing really makes a lot of sense to me. And it obviously is having good results. Um, if we take uh, another turn, there's another aspect of the U.S. model that I think is, is, uh, is troubling that you don't have. And it sounds like you're going to make good use of, which is 
there's been a great deal of skepticism and reluctance in the United States to use telemedicine and telehealth. Uh, insurance companies feel like it's too rich for a fraud opportunity. And so up until they were legally compelled to do so, they were reluctant to reimburse for uh, telemedicine, telehealth visits. And that's a particularly bad problem in rural environments here in the United States. It's also bad where you've got socioeconomically disadvantaged people who would take hours potentially to get not that far, just to get to the hospital or get to the doctor. And it wipes out a day's wages because they're hourly employees. That's not helpful either. Um, we've, you know, the, the good folks over at, uh, over at Facebook have coined the, or have taken over the, the term meta and metaverse. Um, talk to me a little bit about if, or trying to find some terms, if you will, you know, in terms of distinguishing between telemedicine and telehealth and healthcare in the future in what we're calling the metaverse. And okay. tell me how you yeah. got positioning to, to be involved in that. Sure. Um, well, I think it's, it's easy because with the, the early, um, sort of impressions we've been given of what is becoming the metaverse is very much just basically, um, you know, uh, teleconferencing with an avatar, essentially. That's that's as close, you know, maybe a bit of 3D in there, a bit of virtual reality, but really the metaverse is, is so much more than that. It's the, the uh, combination of multiple technologies, some of which are more mature than others, some are more proven. Um, but that's what's really exciting is we still don't know exactly all the technologies and how they're going to um, actually fit into the metaverse. We know which ones are going to be there. We know, you know, um, internet of things, uh, blockchain technology, virtual reality, augmented reality, AI, you know, ever increasing or improving 5G connectivity, digital twins is going to be massive, especially within healthcare. Um, so that's what's going to make up the metaverse. And, and I really do hope that it doesn't become owned by one or two key people, like you say about you know, the people that Facebook now becoming meta, because actually that's not what the metaverse is about. It's about this decentralized, um, ever fluid um, environment in which you know you can move from, from area to area of the metaverse with no one person owning it, but everybody bringing different concepts together. And actually that, that moves me really nicely into how we see it within healthcare um, and, and where we fit into that, because like you rightly said, you know, we're much more about the behavior of people and how do people access their services as opposed to being clinical experts. And, you know, we're not going to move into trying to say, how can we diagnose heart disease in the, uh, the metaverse? Uh, you know, as much as I'm very passionate about precision medicine, and I really enjoy where we're moving with that. And I'm, I'm a bit of a, a geek for it. I am not the person to say how we're going to, to do that. Not at this stage, maybe in the future. But what we will, what we do know is what's going to motivate people to access their healthcare in the metaverse. What's going to, what's the people's behavior going to be to, and how do they want to access it? So when we talk about building the, um, the first hospital in the metaverse that can treat a million patients per day, what we're saying is we're going to build the access portal for where they are. And we, we'll do some of the treatments. The areas we're very good in is obviously occupational health, but then the other peripheral services that. So mental health is we're very good at. Um, physiotherapy obviously fits into what we're doing. So those sort of areas within the metaverse we will be doing. Um, but then what, what you then want to do is say, well, 
you're going to have all these fantastic companies which are developing different areas of um, healthcare which will be applicable to the metaverse, whether you have got someone who's building, I don't know, uh, digital twins to be able to assess somebody's heart condition or knee condition or whatever it may be in, in the metaverse. What we want to do is provide the access portal and then we can plug in all of these other services which people can access. And effectively, that's what, for me, the metaverse should be about, is help, is saying, how do people get into it and then offer them the ability to, for that fluid transition from to whichever area that they need. So you would come into our hospital and then depending on which area you would need, you'd then be signposted and your avatar would obviously move in to go and see their, their specialists. So um, I think the area we're going to provide the most value to healthcare in the metaverse is other than the sort of the, the few areas that we currently specialize with in real world medicine is um, actually providing the the user experience, understanding the, the behavioral patterns of people within health, how they want to receive their healthcare, and then give them the access to, to those services. So that's, that raises a whole bunch of intriguing questions. You know, obviously, uh, privacy concerns, medical records distribution. Um, in some countries in, in the EU, you guys have uh, medical information vaults, healthcare data vaults. We don't really have that in the United States. Um, but the APIs are useful enough that you can, you know, switch from one provider to another pretty quickly. Um, again, another big problem in the United States. So describe to me a little bit, uh, you know, one of the things I've seen a lot of, obviously, like many people, are uh, wearables. And wearables are, you know, taking, uh, collecting a bunch of information on us. And it's been really interesting because in the United States, we have a tremendous obesity problems, uh, problem. And we have some, actually have sadly, far too many states where you have 25, 30, 35% of adult, the adult population who is classified as obese. Not a good situation because of all the healthcare concerns that arise out of that. The data that comes in from those wearables, um, and one of the things that's really kind of emerging as a, as a technology, uh, technological understanding is that the way to control weight is a kind of a combination of um, the management functions of insulin and cortisol, um, amongst other things, and your hormones and a few other things, but generally it's insulin and cortisol. So as you're taking, well, there are only a couple of companies out there that I've seen that are able to ingest data from the wearables, coupled with data from healthcare records, coupled with images and, and uh, lab tests and the like. So I can imagine that the digital twin you referred to might at some point include uh, a glucose monitor that's collecting you know, real-time glucose measurements that then would inform insulin levels and the reactions you may or may not have to particular foods that then would allow you to control weight. Um, it seems to me that the metaverse would be a better place to do that because you have all your data in one place. Am I overplaying that a little bit or no? I think you're possibly overplaying it from the, the, the digital twin and then the, um, how that would affect your food. I think what digital twins would allow is for better education of people to, to see how the, uh, their lifestyle choices or their medication uh, regimes or supplement regimes affects their, their health because they'd actually be able to physically see it. And this is an area that I think is particularly exciting because you'd almost be able to see into the future. So 
by knowing by having a genetically identical digital twin you could then play out a sequence of health events speed those up and then see today what your digital twin will be like in 10 years time based on these lifestyle factors or these uh, medicine factors but you can also and do that in, in real time too right so so i'm wearing a glucose monitor i eat a bowl of pasta and I watch my insulin levels skyrocket, which means I'm going to gain 10 pounds if I continue on that course over the course of the next two weeks. Yeah, but if you could see that, imagine if you went to, so you know you could actually physically see that on your um, computer screen or in, in VR, or you're effectively looking at it's got a virtual reality mirror, and you could see yourself what you would look like based on what you've just done if you continue to do that for the next two weeks, then that would be. <laughs> People can only feel the pain once they've seen or actually felt the pain. You know, we, we all have, what is it at the moment, one in two of us have the chance of catching, uh, not catching, uh, developing cancer. Yet not many of us are doing the right things to keep us from, from doing so. Right. Whereas if you showed your, your current self, your future self with cancer and the, the pain or your inability to, to live a normal life based on that, you that would hopefully not with everybody with, with most people would would produce the motivation and the behavioral change needed to prevent that from happening it's the same and cancer is a very severe one let's look at it from a just a uh potentially a uh an osteoarthritis yeah like a, or, or ortho problems or yeah, yeah. ortho problems so basically you could show someone this is your this is your knee based on your current weight if you if you keep your weight at, at its current level for the next 10 years this is what your knee joint looks like that knee joint is in a lot of pain in 10 years time if we and this is your knee joint i'm not showing you a model here this is your knee joint this is based on your genetics your digital twin if you reduce your weight this is what your knee joint looks like which one would you prefer to have you know it's these and again it's not going to work with everyone because some people would prefer you know believe ignorance is bliss. well it's not when it comes to health knowledge is power when it comes to health you want to have the knowledge you can decide what you do with it and you know put the correct interventions in place so i believe with the majority of people that would start to get the behavioral changes that we need and start to get them to make hopefully much better choices and then reduce healthcare costs there you go so one of the things that uh recent book sounds like you're tapping right into a lot of this uh intellectual property in your in these methodologies but there's a book out by a guy named james clear named called atomic habits and it, uh, it's something you're, you're right on top of as, as a way of changing behavior and, and really making certain that those get embedded in the psychology of the individuals uh, that you're serving. That's a great, great effort there. I have to uh, check it out and make sure I've, I've read it. I read a lot on, on habits and uh, I'm not sure if I've, I've, I've heard of that one, but it sounds good. Well, it's, not it amazing it's, got great, it's got a great title. It is a great, great title, yeah. And that's everything, isn't it? The title yeah. is everything on the book. Yeah, I, I, my book, uh, The 60% Solution, Rethinking Healthcare, I, it may go down in, in history as maybe one of the worst titles, but uh, in any event, it, it, it's uh, an approach to the U.S. healthcare industry that uh, is a little bit different and deals with problems that you, you guys don't have in the U.K. Uh, but I, I think that there's an opportunity for us to look to innovation, look for innovation um, in other models and figure out what works better uh, than, than what we're doing today. My fear in the United States is that the, the economic drivers are all pointed in the wrong direction. And we just, we really have to do something better to get more people involved and engaged in, 
in their own healthcare. And, and one of the things that I believe has happened is in the US model as, a, as a, an unintended consequence of insurance is that people view insurance as a layaway plan for health, right? Mm -hmm. In other words, they're paying for it anyway, so they can do whatever they want and the insurance company is gonna pay for it sooner or later. Well, that's kind of not the right way to go about things. Uh, it, first of all, it's very expensive. And second of all, it has very bad side effects if you, you know, if you don't do things properly. And, and so we got to get ahead of it. Um, but I, we also struggle in getting corporations to really put shoulder behind change. There's a great uh, remark. In fact, there's a remarkably strong headwind uh, providing resistance to change. And we have to we have to do something better about getting people engaged. And the wellness programs in the United States without the kinds of things you're talking about, and I think you're, you're correct to kind of uh, uh, tie them or link them in certain ways back to EAP programs that just really kind of run their course. Uh, we, we really haven't made, as a, as a nation, we haven't made that leap yet. And so I, I really commend you on your innovation. You said earlier that your grandfather, did he start the company? No, 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 he's just obviously, he just, he, I got my surname from him. So yeah, yeah. I actually, the, the only reason I know he'd be angry at you, and a little story for you here, my, um, I don't know if you know my history, but I was a, a rugby player. That's how I started my career. So I left school. I didn't go to university. I played rugby. And my um, brother, who I also own the business with, I own my business with two brothers, uh, Sam, he also played for me. He was slightly better than I was, or he had more success in, the, in rugby anyway, better or not. Um, and I once remember watching him play a match and I was sitting with my uh, granddad and we were in the stands at, this, at, the, at the stadium and it was a, a televised game on, on Sky Sports. So I guess, I think you guys have Fox Sports. So over here it's called Sky Sports. And um, all, all season, my granddad had been watching my brother play on TV and they were calling him Lattice the same as you do. So <laughs> Sam Lattice, you know, coming through, probably having a go in for dropping the ball or something. So, and I remember this day watching as my granddad collared one of the spectators, not spectators, one of the commentators for Sky as they were going up into the commentary box and saying, um, I don't want you to hear, hear you call Sam Lattus, Sam Lattus anymore. He's called Sam Latus because I'm his granddad. I know it's the same way in surname. So it's always stuck with me that when everyone says Lattus and apologize, I said, you don't have to worry about apologizing to anyone but my granddad. So that's the, um, the story, which I think is quite funny because I was there and I saw it, but I'm not sure if I deliver it very well. No, no, it makes a lot of sense. But it's funny because um, I spent a lot of time in New Zealand and uh, there's a guy who was on the, on the All Blacks who worked mm -hmm. with me. Um, you were far less broken up than he was. He had a crooked nose and a bad, a broken clavicle. And, you know, it seems to me that most of his limbs have been broken one point or another from playing rugby. It's, it's a, it's a yeah. brutal sport. It is, yeah. I mean, I, I, I had a, a six-year career and I was injured for it. So that my, my career never really got going. Um, but it's probably why I'm good in our current field because I understand pretty much every area of physiotherapy and um, knee injury, knee surgery, shoulder surgery, anything to do with broken bones. I, I probably have had it, the treatment done to me. So um, my learning was probably through experience within healthcare. Indeed, indeed. So what's next? What do you guys look to in the future? What do you see as the future for, for Latus and, uh, and how do you want to embrace it and tackle it and, and fund it? And um, so currently our, um, the, the biggest projects we're working on at the moment, and we're, we're, I'd like to say we're coming to the end of it. You never do, do you? You just find another iteration. Um, but we are 
what we've done is the, the biggest point of differentiation we could find within the occupational health market. So our really core work was um, digitizing all of our, our services. So at the moment, we are the only occupational health company, certainly in the UK, I don't know if there's anywhere else in the world that do this, that can deliver all of our services totally remotely. So we could test your full regime of health that we need to, under the HSE guidelines, such as being able to test your hearing, your lung function, you test your skin, looking your ears, looking at it. We can do all of that virtually now. Wow. Um, and, and we're the first occupational health company that are doing that. Um, so the, the main driving factor for us doing that, other than the fact that we wanted this point of differentiation, was when we looked at the market in the UK, the, um, there seemed to be a real um, friction to growth beyond a circuit sort of 50, I think the market lead in the UK is about, in, in pure occupational health is about 50, 55 million a year, which is, is great, but it's not mega either. There's obviously something, there was a friction there to stop it and we realised it was down to resource and nursing uh, and the fact that and they were reliant on uh, being able to travel to every location to deliver the service because that's what occupational health really does in the UK. It's very much a peripatetic nature in that our nurses, our doctors and clinicians drive to um, the sites of our employer, our uh, clients, our businesses that we work with to deliver the service. So you've got the environmental impact of that, which we just weren't happy with. We couldn't, it, it, it didn't sit within our, you know, our moral compass to actually allow this to be the way that our, we continue to deliver our services, where we've got our clinicians driving around the country, increasing our carbon footprint when we now have the, the digital or the technological capability to not have to do that. But no one was embracing it and not within occupational health. It's literally, we call it like a, a dinosaur industry. It's still based on 1970s technology. You know, it'd be the equivalent of me going into a sales pitch and, and giving someone a, a VHS and saying, can you play that? That's, there's our sales pitch. Because imagine if you did that, they'd laugh at you. But actually, that's the way that they're currently receiving their occupational health services at the moment. So we, um, so that, that's what we're, we're um, currently, we've, we've got the product, we've got the software, we've got the hardware, we've brought it all together under our uh, pr program that we call Yoda. Um, but at the moment, it's just about getting that behavioural change from the, the businesses to say, yes, that's, we are happy to receive our occupational health that way. We actually saw that. If I can interrupt, yes. how, how do you collect the sample or the, like if you want to check the heart rate or the lung capacity or the breathing capability or uh, you need to do a, a blood test, how do you collect that data locally and then digitize it and send it off? Yeah, so, I mean, uh, obviously, if you got to collect a, uh, an actual sample, so whether that be a urine sample, a blood sample, a hair sample, um, then obviously that needs to be, um, then, then that, that we, if, if it's a venous blood sample that's required, then obviously we do have to send someone currently to still do that. Having said that, um, there is very good technology coming out, which is going to eradicate that. Um, but that's all totally under NDA and definitely too much to, to share on, on this but um, amazing technology, which is going to change the way that uh, blood, blood sampling is done. Um, so there's a reason but, for a follow-up conversation then? Yeah, possibly, yeah, 100%. Um, but the, it, everything else that we talked about, so the, you know, being able to test someone's hearing, essentially we can do the same hearing test where the, the individual is, um, is still getting played the same 
uh, tones at the same frequencies at the same decibel level in the, the same environment but just without us having to, to to be there so you i could make sure that we've supplied you with the the correct um, equipment to do a valid hearing test same thing for lung function test and all of it at the moment you'd be getting guided through it from a, a clinician a technician on the other side of a call but actually we're moving towards not even needing that and that's not with the aim to remove the technicians and reduce jobs it's to allow one technician to to, to look after more people at once um because actually sitting there me sitting there while you do your hearing test i'm not adding any value i'm waiting for you to finish a five minute ten minute test in that time i could be helping more people so really that that's what it's about it's allowing the technician or the expert to help more people at once very good so it sounds like you're continuing to embrace technology you're continuing to um, look for more innovative processes and procedures to reduce costs reduce friction and uh and obviously that will show up in the bottom line for the companies you serve but also hopefully will show up in your bottom line as well so you can be a healthy organization um, that can deliver services elsewhere are you doing this kind of work elsewhere in europe or anywhere other than england we we do look after a few companies who have their headquarters or strong presence in the uk and then have um sites around europe so that's an obvious next progression for us to move more into into europe um and to be essentially what we look for is which countries have the same um health and safety requirements by law as the uk or as close to as possible what's the funding model there for is it a, a um an nhs service is it an employer-led funded service uh, is it an insurer-led funded service similar to the US? And then we we go and um, um, we'll produce a strategy to attack those areas next. Fantastic, fantastic. Well, I'm really looking forward to the next time we talk. Uh, mm -hmm. I want to hear about all this, the cool stuff that's coming. And I genuinely, from the bottom of my heart, I wish you all the success in the world because what you're doing is important. Um, it's important to not only the people in the UK, but it's also important others of us around the world who, who have an opportunity to learn from you and hopefully adopt some of the things that you're doing in one way or another uh, to address the, the needs of our population, hopefully in a better way, uh, to extend the, the quantity and the quality of healthcare services around our communities in a way that uh, helps everybody and, and lifts everybody up. Um, I'm really grateful that you would take some time to talk to me today. I appreciate it. Um, and I, I look forward to following up with you soon. That's great. Thanks so much, Ty. I really enjoyed talking to you too. Cheers. Thanks for watching this week's episode of Civil Discourse. To learn more about today's topic or our guest, visit www.the60percentsolution.com or www.tfip.group.